Just stand in prayer for another moment, please. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you um, unqualified, an unqualified invitation and an unqualified permission for you to speak into our heart, into the center of who we are. To not only speak into our heart, but to make yourself real to us through the gospel and to do that important work in us that needs to be done so that we will be fit for heaven. Father, we ask that you will do this gentle but important work in our lives this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So, so I, uh, I, I like to read, and uh, one of my favorite characters in fiction is uh, the Michael Connolly novels uh, featuring Harry Bosch, but he's also written a couple of others that feature other people. And, and uh, this whole genre of books, and some of you read probably books in this genre, or if you don't read books in this genre, you watch movies in this genre. And uh, in fact, Bosch, <laughs> it's actually something that... Um, Supreme Court of Canada and, uh, and uh, Parliament should take to heart. One of his lines for Harry Bosch is, either everyone matters or no, no, nobody matters, uh, which is a pretty good line. And, and what happens in those novels is uh, he's concerned for justice. And it doesn't matter to him whether the person who's murdered has been a multimillionaire or a street person. He wants to see justice done for them. And part of what drives the books is not only, of course, is he trying to figure out the murderer, and not only is, in a, is he, in a sense, matching wits with the murderer, but he's also matching wits with the police department, the bureaucrats, uh, who time and time again are just concerned for their own career or for the institution and don't really care that justice is done for the person who's been murdered. And there's a variety of things like this in spy novels and thrillers and uh, often a lot of private eye novels are connected to the same thing. The police are not particularly, or some police aren't interested in justice. Uh, they just want an easy conviction. They want to have an easy life. They want to get promotions. And, uh, and it's a very, very popular genre in North America and probably in other cultures as well. And, you know, when we read in those novels, I, I can't imagine that a single person reads that wishing they could be like one of those bureaucrats who would frustrate justice. Like, we read those novels because we want to be like Harry Bosch. We, we want to be uh, like Jack Reacher. We want to be like, and I'm going to stop mentioning characters. That's who we want to be like. Um, you know, courage is still, on one level, courage is mocked in our culture, but on the other hand, there still is, I, I think, a residual sense that we wish that we would be courageous. Like, if it came up, uh, I think almost everybody in Canada would say that um, back... In, um, back in the days of the Underground Railroad, bringing people who were escaping slavery out of the slave states into Canada, I think every Canadian would wish that if, if we had been alive then, we would help with the Underground Railroad. If we'd been Americans, we, we would risk our lives to help slaves escape. That's, I think, everybody would wish that that's what they were like. I think every Canadian, unless you're unbelievably anti-Semitic, would, would say, you know, if, if we were alive in Europe uh, during uh, the Holocaust, uh, we, 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 I, we would be people who would protect Jews. We would hide church. We, I think that's, our, our church would say, uh, that would be our hope, that if we were back in time, our church would be a sanctuary for Jewish people. Um, 
sort of coming up to a, a bit of an anniversary about it, but I, I think all of us would wish that if we were back in time in Birmingham, Alabama, you would hope that I wasn't one of the ministers telling Martin Luther King to be quiet and he deserved to be in jail. Uh, you would want me to be with Martin Luther King in jail. That's what Canadians want. We want to be courage, courageous for things which are very good and, and very important. Um, so the question is, are people who are courageous, do they just not have any fear? Is there something unique about them in that regard? They're sort of almost, um, uh, you know how some people just don't pick up social cues, they just don't pick up the, the cues that should make them afraid, or is there something else going on? What we're about to look at is a story, and if you're watching this, if you're sort of trying to figure out what the Christian faith is, for 2,400 years, over 2,400 years, people have been reading this story. And at the heart of this story, one of the hearts of this story, is how you grow courage. So let's look at it to see how it is that we would grow courage, store courage up in us, that we would be that type of person that when the time comes, we would take that courageous step. We would stand up against the bullies. We would stand up against the bureaucracy. We would make our voice heard for that which is really good for people. So let's see how the story goes. It, it's uh, Nehemiah. I uh, said uh, people have been reading it for 2,400 years. Whether or not you view it as the scripture, it should still be of interest to you that for 2,400 years people have been reading this story. Uh, it's, if Jesus tarries, it's very unlikely that anything written today will be read in 2,400 years. <laughs> that those tweets or Instagram posts or TikTok posts are going to be still looked at in 2,400 years. This, this has legs in terms of how people have gone to it time and time again. And so here's how the story goes. The words of uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. I'm going to fill you in on what some of these things mean in a moment. It, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him them concerning the Jewish people who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, and they would have been shaking their head, they would have looked down. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, just a bit of a, a context now for the, this, this story. About 140 years prior to this, uh, the Jewish uh, people that were still alive in the southern kingdom of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the emperor of Babylon, uh, they uh, destroyed Jerusalem, like destroyed, destroyed Jerusalem. They took all of the treasures away, and um, they uh, carried most of the people away into exile back into Babylon, back into Babylon. And so on one level, for 140 years, uh, Jerusalem has uh, been destroyed. The walls have been destroyed and, um, and the gates have been burned. Uh, and then if you go back and you read Ezra and Nehemiah, which is sort of really one story, you'll, you'll see that a, you know, quite a few decades earlier, uh, there's a miracle and, and uh, the Persian emperor uh, in, invites Jewish people to return to the homeland uh, and then you'll see there's all, and this, this is going to launch a hundred years of enmity against the Jewish people. 
uh, if you go back from Ezra right to the end of Nehemiah, it, it encompasses a, that, a single story in, in, in episodes of over a hundred years of enmity. And so there, there have been other things to try to rebuild the city and everything, and they've, they've failed. And now we have this Nehemiah fellow uh, hearing about this. Now, there's just one other thing I, I need, I need to, to say. Um, if, I don't know how many of you have been to Africa, and I'm sure it would also be true of those of you who have gone to South America and Latin America and uh, probably large parts of Asia. Uh, people, poor, poor people don't have walls. Like poor defenseless people don't have walls around their houses. But if you can manage any type of financial resource whatsoever and you have a house, you put a wall around it. And you put a wall around it because of, uh, if you don't, there's just constant thievery. And, uh, and there's often constant threats of violence. And in, in many of those countries, the police can actually be the source of the thievery or the source of the violence, but the justice can be very, very intermittent. And so there has to be, in a sense, a, a sense of caring for yourselves. Just a you know, bit of an aside, the things that are going on in our culture right now uh, are undermining public confidence that we should give the majority of power to the, the police and the state to protect us. Maybe not as much here in Ottawa. We're still a very safe city, but there's trends in, in, in jurisprudence and in laws and in politics that are undermining public confidence uh, that the state is going to actually protect us. In, in other words, if this continues, you will see walls around our houses. So we, we can't fully appreciate this. Uh, my guess is if I was speaking, I was in Rwanda just a month or two ago, I'm guessing that if I spoke in Rwanda, they would just see it as the most obvious thing in the world, that if there's something precious and important that's not a wall around it, it's, it means you're open to perpetual danger, perpetual thievery, uh, perpetual abuse. And so this is a big deal. And so, um, how, how, does, how does he respond? And uh, how on earth is this story? Well, this is setting the story for the courage that's going to be required of Nehemiah to do something about it. In fact, the whole book of Nehemiah is about acts of courage after acts of courage after acts of courage. Um, actually, I'm going to say one other thing that people don't always real about, realize about Nehemiah, and it might be part of what's going to... Uh, his, 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 um, his sense of shame uh, that's going to come out later is that he's almost definitely a eunuch. Um, he probably couldn't have had this position without being castrated. And, uh, and that, that's a very problematic thing for Jewish people back in those days in terms of even your status. So this is a man who's not a perfect, complete, whole man that even uh, the other Jewish people are going to look at him a little bit askance, and yet God's going to use him, and he's going to have remarkable courage. So let's see what happens next. Verse 4. Um, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and, and now from verses 5 to 11a, we're going to hear his prayer. Uh, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, um, I've been a part of several organizing uh, uh, groups in Ottawa. In fact, I've been involved in lots of organizing groups in in Ottawa and in in Canada uh, over the last decades. And occasionally I've been a part of a group that's wanted to make a type of public apology. And in every case, I've argued against the public apology. Because in every case, I've said that it's not honest, it's cynical. I think I've had a little bit more persuasive words than that. But you see, it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to confess to sins that the Irish people might have done, that Protestants might have done to Catholics in Ireland uh, 120 years ago. I could, con- and then you point out some other, I can confess that all day. It takes no virtue whatsoever to confess sins that other people have done. And in fact, almost every time something like that's done, it's a type of virtue uh, posturing, or it's a a type of cynical attempt to try to manipulate people. The, The test of a character is to say, I've done this. I've done this wrong. Like... In, in, in every case, I, in one of the cases, it was about apologizing to the LGBTQ plus community. And I, I've said to the people, listen, if you want to get up and begin by saying, I confess that for many years I was prejudiced against gays and lesbians and I've had a change of heart and I, I, I repent of how I've talked and joked about them, I think that would be a very powerful and moving thing. But if you just want to get up and make a generic thing, and it's pretty obvious you don't actually think you're guilty, like how is that a Christian thing? So what's really interesting here about Nehemiah's prayer is it it sounds as if, and he is, he's confessing the sins of his people. But he's also saying, in a sense, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in need of prayer. In fact, and and this is definitely the case, I've known many people who've uh, reached very, very high levels of, not many, I've known some people who've reached high levels of wealth or high levels in government. And it is not the case that people who get lots of promotions do it by doing compromise things. It's not the case that everybody does it. But we all know that many who go, who climb, climb a greasy pole do it by stepping on the heads of others. And Nehemiah, we're going to discover at the end of this little thing, has written, risen to a very prestigious position in the, in, 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 in the, in the kingdom, the, the empire of Persia. And I can well imagine that he is thinking when he's doing that, is, you know what, not only have, the, have my forebearers sinned, but the things I've had to do in terms of idolatry and other types of things that have violated the law to reach my position of prominence and my wealth and my comfort, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. You know, it's one of the things that we can pray for ourselves that takes courage in this day and age is to actually just acknowledge that to own when, for me to own when I've done something wrong, for you to own when you've done something wrong, increasingly takes courage. Now, some of you might have noticed, it's going to get a little bit more puzzling, that there's this odd mixture of intimacy and, and legalism which is going on in his prayer. You know, here we've broken your commandments and rules, yet on the other hand, this, let your eyes be looking at me and your ears hearing me. 
so what's going on? Well, let, let's just finish that little bit of the prayer. There's this odd mixture of apparent legalism and religiosity and, and yet intimacy. Well, verse 7, um, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded uh, through your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, that's a sort of a, a puzzling thing, eh? Uh, here's the thing. If over at coffee time... Uh, you get talking to somebody, and you say, oh, uh, in fact, actually, we're going to have Matt and Amy come up in a little bit, and I'm, I'm going to ask them how long they're married. Uh, they, I did it at eight, and, and, and they both knew the answer to the question, by the way, so it, they're not going to get in trouble. Unless they just, all of a sudden, speaking to everybody, they have a bit of a brain-dead moment that happens to people. But if, if you were to talk to somebody and say, oh, how the two of you married? And, uh, and, 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 the, and the woman said, you know what? This guy, every time I spoke... He obeyed what I wanted him to do. And he obeyed me, and he obeyed me, and he obeyed me, and he obeyed me. No matter what I asked him to do, he obeyed me, so I thought I'd marry him. You'd go, like, that's weird. What a stupid reason to get married. But if you were to talk at a coffee hour and you say, you know, I don't, I don't see your... I know this is, can be painful for people, especially on Mother's Day, and if you were to say, uh, I haven't seen your your husband around for a month and then they started to cry and they said you know I, I really 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 love him I still love him but he just keeps doing things that disrespect me that dishonor me that he knows that I don't want that are just ruining the relationship he's, he's selfish and self-centered and he, you know, he flirts with other women and it, it just it breaks my heart that he's doing those things, and, and, and we're having a time apart. And I'm not sure if the marriage is going to survive. And then they share with you, you know, I really hope, I really hope he turns. I really hope, because I love him, I really hope he, he comes to his senses, and he's willing to take the counseling, he's willing to take some type of, you know, maybe have a mentor and and he can apologize, and, and he, you know, he can start acting in a way that... So you see, here, here's the thing. In a sense, all religion and spirituality is like the woman who says, this guy obeyed me and obeyed me, obeyed me, and I decided to marry him. That's, in a sense, what all religion and spirituality is. What this text is about isn't about legalism. It's about an intimate marriage, in a sense, an intimate covenant between God and his people. And just as in a marriage, the, the marriage comes about out of love, and there's a desire for intimacy. And, and, and if you have language like this, we all recognize that language is what breaks a marriage, what breaks a relationship, what breaks a family. And that's the language we see here. And if we listen to it as if it's talking about religion, what we're actually hearing is, a, is something very counter-cultural 
because all religion basically says, obey me and obey me and obey me until finally I accept you. And that's why so many people in our culture say they're nuns now. They don't want to have anything to do with religion because on an intuitive level, they understand that that's just ridiculous. But this is the exact opposite of that. It begins with an act of love. It's, it's all about love. And with, within love, there's a, a way of, you know, if Louise, at, like, there's some things that Louise is at. We're having some, a Mother's Day thing later on in the afternoon. She's asked me to reorganize things in the, in the backyard because we're having some family members over. And if I don't do it, if I just spend my time, I don't know, eating chocolate, watching YouTube videos and don't do it, she'll be mad at me. And if she tells you next Sunday, you'll say, you go, girl. You're right to be mad at him. You asked him to do that and he didn't do it. <laughs> And so what we see here is, is, a, is a picture of intimacy, God's desire for intimacy. And even what we're seeing is something from the book of Deuteronomy and, and other places throughout the Old Testament where, where God says, listen, I, at the end of the day, it doesn't give my heart any pleasure to see you, you know, ruin your lives and walk away from me. And if you, no matter how far away you are, if you turn to me, it, it, will be, it will be exactly like what Jesus says in the parable of, of, uh, of the prodigal son, where the father sees the son from a great distance and he runs towards him. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of the God that's been revealed here in the word. That's his heart towards you and me. We make the smallest turn and he runs to you because he loves you. Now, there's another surprise because there's a, a word here that, uh, that happens just at the end of the prayer, which often people think of as a fearsome thing, a sign, uh, a, a bug in, in Christianity that if we could get rid of it, it, it would improve matters. But it's actually not a bug. It's actually a feature, and it's a very important feature, a profoundly important feature, which is very unique to the, to the, to the Christian faith, to the gospel. Look, look what happens in verse 10. They are your servants and your people. He's still praying, right? They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Listen to this. Who delight to fear your name. Doesn't that sound, for many Canadians, that just sounds masochistic. Delight to fear? What? But Nehemiah, this is like the, this is like the, the um, you know, all of the prayer's been building up to this. <laughs> we, we delight. I want to delight to fear your name. And so he says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, why on earth would the Bible, and this, by the way, isn't just some you know, Old Testament thing. If you go back, you, you use a, a word search, you'll see that it's a New Testament virtue as well. Uh, I think it's in Acts 9 where it says the church grew in the, the people, they, they grew in the power of the Holy Spirit and the fear of God and the gospel spread. So it's a New Testament virtue. And what's at the very heart of it? There's lots of aspects about it, but at the very heart of it is boundaries, so one of the problems that couples can have, uh, and I shared with you a couple of weeks ago how I ruined my wife's birthday uh, one year, and part of the reason I ruined her birthday was because I thought that what I liked was what she liked. And I wasn't able to realize that Louise is Louise and George is George, and we're different. 
and I can start to have who I am blur into who she is, right? That's one of the problems we can have with kids, parents with kids, is uh, that you sort of think, you know, maybe because uh, when you were growing up, you didn't get to play piano, play baseball, climb, climb mountains, and so you want your kids to do that, and, but frankly, your kid would actually just like to, to read a book <laughs> quietly, but you, you, you don't get where you begin and end and where your kid begins and end, and you get it all mixed up and confused. And if you do that with a human being that you can see, a constant problem is, is how you do that with God whom you can't see. And so that's, you see, why if you go back and you look at what the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about the fear of God, at the very heart of the fear of God is a growing knowledge of where, for me, if I'm talking about myself, is where George begins and ends and where God begins and ends, and I never confuse myself with God. That I have, in a sense, a strong... The fear... You see, that's why the fear has a very odd combination. On one hand, it can sometimes be translated as, as awe, and on the other hand, it's also a type of fear. Is it just like it's... I, I feel terrible when I confuse myself with my wife. And I, in a sense, I have a fear that I, I, I don't want to do that again. And so with God, there's this growing desire to not mix up me with God. And at the same time, the more that you recognize God is distinct from you, the more you can long and yearn for him and want to be in awe of him. And that's what they're doing. They're delighting to fear and they know that God has his own purposes, and, it, and, and part of that was you know, for them to be judged for the things that they've done which were validly wrong. But Nehemiah is, is, is praying himself into a delight to understand where he begins and ends and where God begins and ends, and to know that that is good. That is good at the deepest level. So just here's a couple of things before we go on any further. I, um, if you could put up the, uh, the first point. Because people might want, you'll notice here by the end, that he, he asks for success. And all of us struggle with, uh, not all the time, but have struggled at different times with the fact that we prayed and prayed and prayed and God didn't, doesn't say yes to what we want. But here's the first thing to understand about biblical prayer is that biblical prayer is a means of grace. Biblical prayer is a means of grace. And I, sorry, I'm going to put some of you to sleep for a moment, but one of the best illustrations of a means of grace can be seen if you look at the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And I can have the handy people in the room make stone basins that can hold water, and, and you can make the same number that Jesus made, and you can pour water into them, and you can move them, whatever it is, 80 feet or 100 feet or however long they move them. And you can do that all day. You can do that next week. You can do the week after that, and it'll never, the water will never turn into wine. Because putting water in a stone basin and moving the stone basin is not how you make wine. <laughs> Just not how it, how it goes, right? But why is that a means of grace? You see, this illustrates what a means of grace is, is that Jesus asks us to do things. And if he asks us to do things and we do it, and, and often what he asks us to do are counterintuitive. It doesn't really make any sense. But if we do what he asks us to do, he makes the wine. That's why it's a means of grace. He does something in us that we can't accomplish by our own intelligence. So, you know, why do we read the Bible? Listen, I'll just be honest, for a lot of us, a lot of us find large parts of the Bible unbelievably boring and unhelpful. And in fact, if you talk honestly to Christians, they'll 
be honest that they might not have read the Bible all week, but they've read Christian books during the week because, frankly, C.S. Lewis is such a better writer than Mark or Isaiah. He's way better, you know? But reading C.S. Lewis isn't a means of grace. Word. And you read his word, and he makes the wine. You know, prayer is a means of grace. He asks you to pray about certain things, and you do it. it, There's going to be changes that happen in your life. Meeting together on a Sunday morning. Let me tell you, social psychologists and all the smarty Smart people with pointy heads and, or big heads, all that, men and women, they'll tell you there's a whole lot of better ways to build community and to create social change than meeting together on a Sunday morning. But those aren't means of grace. You know, the Lord's Supper, a means of grace. Giving to the, giving to the ministry of the church, financially, that's a means of grace, and prayer is a means of grace. And if you could put up the next point... When you pray according to his word, the Lord is slowly fitting you for the new heavens and the new earth. You see, that's the heart of all of the means of grace. A few years ago, I preached on the book of Colossians, and I kept using the example of a cut rose. And, and, and in a sense, all human beings apart from Christ are like a cut rose. They, we can look very, very beautiful and very, very pretty, but we're cut off from life and we're dying. And in a sense, what happens is when all the, if, if all human beings are cut roses apart from Christ, and they all think up their plans, and they all think up their things to do, all they're really thinking of doing, it all keeps them within the realm of being a dead rose, a cut rose. But the fact of the matter is, is here we listen to the wisdom of the world as to how to be a better cut rose, but he wants to turn you into a sequoia tree With deep roots, sequoia tree is the biggest tree. That's what he wants to do with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're reading, you know, the, the latest little pop Christian author. And I'm a, you read good pop Christian authors. I'm not putting them down. I mean, maybe someday God will help me to write a pop Christian book. It'll be my retirement fund, finally, or something like that. It'll, you know, I'll write a book on five love languages. I get one idea, and I can write 75 books on one idea and just rake in the money or something, you know? And, and, um, and, 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 but, but, but God is doing something different. And so we often evaluate. You see, this is one of the things about our prayers and stuff. And when God says no, we're evaluating everything within the frame of this world. But God is doing something within you when you're actually starting to learn how to listen to what he says about prayer and take it to heart that what he's doing is he's forming you, he's fitting you for the new heaven and the new earth. It doesn't mean he's not going to say no to things that you're asking for, but he has a whole other bigger game in mind with you. If you could put up the next point very briefly, when you pray according to his word, the Lord bestows on you the gift of causality. I'm not going to say anything more, much more about that, but that's one of the things that God does you in prayer. He wants you to pray. And he, he, he weaves your prayers in the things that he does in the world. And he wants you to pray for big things. That's sort of the, the next thing. If you put up the fourth point, that would be very helpful. When you pray according to his word, he forms you to right-size the world. To right-size the world. You might notice at the end of his prayer, he, talking, he needs to talk to the emperor of Persia, and he calls him this man. 
here's one of the things we need to remember. The Supreme Court of Canada, they are just men and women. Justin Trudeau, just a man. The people who own the 10 biggest or 100 biggest companies in the world, they're just owned by men and women. And part of the problem we have as Christians is that people seem big and God seems small. And what biblical prayer, when we learn to start to listen to how the Bible is teaching us to pray, one of the means of grace that God is doing within us is helping us to right-size the world, to actually go from living in a fantasy world as if, and I'm not picking on Justin Trudeau, if, if Pierre Paul Oliveira was the Prime Minister of Canada, I would use him as an example as well. This is not a political comment, okay? I, what is, he's just a man. And God is the creator and sustainer of the whole world. And when you actually start to, to live in a world where you understand that there is a God that does exist, the triune God that does exist, and that by being saved by faith in Christ, that you become his child, that he is now your father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit helps you to pray, and that Jesus is the one who redeemed you, and he is, in a sense, your elder brother on one level, and that your father loves you, and you can pour out your heart to him, and he wants you to pray for big things. He wants you to pray for the end of euthanasia in this country. I could go on these other types of things. He wants you to pray for the end of them. And he wants you to pray for a long time. And he doesn't want you to think that somehow or another these human beings control the world and are going to bring the world to where they want it to go. That's just not true. Nehemiah's prayer is the real world. Well, let's, we still haven't got to the courage. I have just a couple of minutes. Let's look what happens. So he's prayed. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. There's a couple of things in this in the story. If you look at the months, he's been praying for four months. Every day he fasts and prays and says, today, Lord, help me to say this. Four months. And now the time has come. And he's afraid for two reasons. This emperor is obviously the type of guy who doesn't like sad people around him. You know, he might say something like, I don't know, if I want to be around sad people, I'll be around my kids or something like that. I don't know what he'd say. Sometimes he'd probably make some type of rude joke, right? He just wants happy people around him. We all probably know people like that. I remember reading a, a, a guy who's an, an, an expert on, you know, leadership and attitude and all of that type of stuff. And he would just unselfconsciously tell himself, tell people that, you know, when his two kids or his couple of three or four kids, two kids or whatever, were in the room with him and his wife, and one of them was really, really sad, he'd say, listen, we're having a great time here. We don't want a sad person like you around. You should go to your room until you change your attitude. What? What a horrendous way to raise your kids. <laughs> and he got applause. <laughs> I was listening to a live talk. Really? 
I can just imagine saying to my wife, you're feeling grumpy. The rest of us are having a good time. You go to your room until you've improved your attitude. <laughs> that would fly like a lead balloon, let me tell you. Anyway, <laughs> and if you said it around about your wife, nobody would be clapping, by the way. I don't know why they think you can say that to your kids. Anyway, so I guess this emperor is one of these guys, but here's the really big thing, and this is where the courage is, that if you go back and you read Ezra chapter 4, you'll see that Artaxerxes, sometime before this, People in the region of Jerusalem had said, listen, they're trying to rebuild the wall, and you need to know that if they rebuild the wall, this is going to be an act of rebellion and sedition against you. They're doing this to kick you out of the region and take all of the capital and to build themselves up as a nation in opposition to you, and you need to stop it. And Artaxerxes did the research and said, you're right, powerful kings have been there. You better stop building the wall because I don't want a revolution. And Nehemiah is praying that he can go to this grumpy guy who wants everybody to be happy and says, by the way, can you give me money so I can rebuild the wall in Jerusalem? That requires courage. That requires great courage. That's why he's afraid. So just very, very briefly, look, look, at, look at what happens. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. <laughs> Good way to begin. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? <laughs> he doesn't say, by the way, our disease, it was your order that... <laughs> knocked down the walls and burned the gates uh, that were starting to be rebuilt. Then the king said to me, and here's the miracle. This is why he is this man. The king said to me, what are you requesting? What? What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the quitting sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased this, the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams. Look what he wants the beams for. So that for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Next few verses show how it's the beginning of a big battle he's going to have with some enemies. So just a couple of things. If you could put up the... the so if you could put up the, the first... Um, the point that would be very helpful. When you pray according to his word, the Lord is storing up courage in you for those times when you are afraid. When you pray according to his word, the Lord is storing up courage in you for those times when you are afraid. See, what's happening in biblical prayer is you're praying after his heart. You know, I... I, I'm, I'm willing to bet $100 that the people in Holland who were betraying the Jews 
weren't praying every day that God would rescue the Jews. See, that's how biblical prayer becomes a bit of a means of grace. You know, if, if you wish that your loved one would come to a saving faith in Christ, but you never pray for them to come to a saving faith in Christ, it's going to be far harder for you to bear witness to Jesus when an opportunity comes to bear witness to Jesus. And, and, and so what's happening is it's not just that you're praying for something, but as you're praying for something that God really wants you to pray for, you're aligning yourself with his will. You're, you're starting to have his heart form your heart. He start, you're starting to have his perspective form your perspective. You're starting to see this man. And, and by the way, by saying this man, is, it's, not, it's not diminishing him. He is just a man. It doesn't mean you don't love him and care for him, but he's just a man. He's not a god. He's, he's not immortal. He's not always right. And so as you pray, what's happening is that the Lord is storing up within you the courage so that when you are, have that moment that you can say something and you're afraid, the fear doesn't win. You're still afraid, but you take the step. And by the way, this is even more throughout all of this. Actually, just put up the final point very briefly. Uh, it was a very small thing, but I just wanted to make you notice that prayer and thinking are not the same thing, but they are natural and necessary partners. <laughs> for four months, he, he was also thinking, right? He had a very detailed plan. I need lumber for this, 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 this. But, but, but here's the thing. All the way through the Old Testament, there's this constant riddle. Here we have this thing that Nehemiah has acknowledged that he's a sinner, and yet he wants favor from God. And in, every, in, in a sense, what you're discover, discussing here is favoritism. So why is it that what God is doing isn't favoritism, but something different? And in a sense, what happens all the way through the Old Testament, all of these talks about, yes, I'm a sinner, show favor to me, you're showing favor to me, and I'm a sinner— it's not reinforcing that God just shows favoritism, where he says, in a sense, you know, I like Jewish people, but it sucks to be Persian. I like Jewish people, but it sucks to be Egyptian. That's not what's going on, especially as, as we see that God's desire is that others become part of the covenant people. It's posing a riddle that only the cross will solve. Because, you see, the riddle is, how is it that God is actually showing grace to me that's not unjust? even though I'm a sinner. And, uh, you know, there's this image. Um, <clears throat> if you think about the cross for a second, on one level, of course, it goes straight up and down, st straight up and down. So in, a, in a sense, it's doing something God and, and human beings, but also it goes sideways. It goes back in time and forward in time. That the death of Jesus, on one hand, is something that takes place in history, but because he's more than just a man, he is the son of man, and we are made in his image, what he does for us is something that can stand for people before and, and behind. And, and so what we see in the, in the cross is, is that it's only God's grace in Jesus that, that means that what we see here is profound love and mercy and grace, not, not unjust favoritism, because in, in the cross, the things that I have done wrong are judged in him. He takes my place. And, the, and, and, and those are punishments that I deserve and that I couldn't withstand, but they fall on him because he, he loves me and he, he offered to do, it, do this for me. 
And that when I put my hand in his, he not only is Jesus in an intense sense dealing with all that I've ever done that's wrong and it, it falls on him. But at the same time, there's something in a sense electric that happens, spiritual that happens when you put your hands in the hand of Christ, that God's favor that he deserves is bestowed to me. And so all of the demands of justice are met in the person of Jesus, but mercy and grace triumph over justice, not by making justice injustice, but by meeting the full demands of justice and then going even before. And so it is that we, on this side of the cross, of all people, should be able to pray to God how we have sinned and how wonderful, how grateful we are for what Christ has done for us and a desire to pray according to his word and to know that as we pray according to his word, as we follow this sometimes incomprehensible means of grace, that not only is the Lord fitting us for the new heaven and the new earth, but he is also storing up within us the courage to confront evil. To not bow to evil, but to confront it and to stand in its presence. Wonderful line in closing about Martin Luther King. He, because he was on his knees before God, that he could stand before tyrants. Lord, that's what I want. I invite you to stand. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, uh, you know how much we're afraid of different things, and still you love us. <laughs> you know the things we've done wrong, and still you love us. We thank you for Jesus. We ask, Lord, that the gospel would become more real to our hearts, that as the gospel becomes more real to our hearts, who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, that, Father, we will do what he asks us to do, and that as we do what he asks us to do, we'll, we trust, Lord. Help us to trust more and more that as we do what he wants us to do, whether it's financial generosity to the church, whether it's uh, spending time in prayer, whether it's part, being part of a good local church, whatever it is, Father, that you have asked us to do, help us to trust that as we do these things that you have asked us to do, that you are making that new wine within us, that it is a means of grace. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.